Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long, and now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, Jim. How are you? Shalom, Rabbi. I'm doing very well, Baruch Hashem. You're getting ready for... On the eve for... of your momentous trip to the land of Israel. We are yes. so excited. Yes, getting on a... Soon. I'm leaving on a jet plane, in the words oh, of the uh, Peter Yarrow and, yeah, and, and the, company. The immortal John Denver. John Denver. But it was written by Peter, Paul, and Mary. I believe, wasn't it? Or not? Maybe I got it mixed I, you know up. I, 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 I don't mean to correct you. You're my elder. Please, please, please. Uh, but, I, but I happen to, you can check it. And with one click, I am quite positive that John Denver wrote that song. And then they, they recorded it also. Yeah. John Henry Duchendorf. There John, you go. That John Denver's real name. That is, there uh, you go. There you go. So, as it were. So. As it were, here you are on your way to the land of Israel. I know how excited you are about that, and we are so excited for you because I know that you are just so happy and fulfilled to be here every time you, you get to come yeah. to, the, to the Holy Land of Israel. Yeah. You're coming for a very happy uh, occasion, which is the, the wedding of my son, and um, we're looking forward to that next week. And you and I have big plans because we will actually be together. I think it's for the next four or five podcasts. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. So actually, we do have big plans, as we've been telling our, our listeners. Um, we are waiting actually for Shlomo, our beloved videographer and uh, media expert, who, who is the backbone of Jerusalem Lights Production, who is currently getting ready to get married. But, he, but we are um, going to be... Uh, celebrating this big milestone when we when we finally start uh, videoing and broadcasting the the, uh, the video content as well of our podcast at some point to be to be announced hopefully very soon as soon as our studio is ready which we are working on with great zeal so hopefully we shall be making some progress on that all good things take time and speaking of your extensive background in radio broadcasting as a dj and all the the storied colorful mm-hmm. multi-textured past that that you enjoy that you bring with you in your your experience that you bring with you as you as the better half of jerusalem lights um, speaking of john denver actually being the, the writer of so i have a friend who is started texting his daughter every morning um name a song that has morning in the title Morning is and broken. he thought like he knew he thought he knew like two or three and she thought sure. she knew two or three and they, but they've been doing this for like a year and a half and mm-hmm. they've so far effort, effortless effortlessly practically named over 500 songs i'm not surprised have yeah morning in the title why do i bring this up jim because i was thinking earlier about songs about about marriage because you know i'm so over the moon and excited and i'm on such an emotional ro- roller coaster i'm so excited that my youngest son is getting married so I came up very quickly and effortless, effortlessly with the Brooklyn Bridges. Um, I heard you're getting married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you remember right. that, I'm sure. Yeah. Don't forget uh, love and marriage. Go together like a horse and carriage. <laughs> and um, uh, the fifth dimension, uh, Wedding Bell Blues. Wedding Bell Blues, yeah, exactly. Otherwise known yeah. as Marry Me Bill. Yeah. Okay. 
And then, of course, there's like the Dixie Cups, Chapel of Love, you know, mm-hmm. going through the chapel and we're going to get married. Yeah. And many, many more. Many, many, it's a, many it's such more. It's a pleasure talking, uh, uh, talking music with you. You know, I'm a great lover of um, music, especially from that heady period of the 70s. Oh, uh, yeah. A when very, they used to make music. Yes, very fertile was, period. My goodness, music exploded and became more important to a lot of people than many other things in life music i think changed a lot of people in our generation it really did you know the protest song became popular in in that era and um the uh, i mean it was amazing it consumed me as a as a that's why i got into radio because i love music so much and i love to entertain maybe one of these days i'll learn how to entertain but be that as it may um, I, I see a pattern developing here, <clears throat> but I, you know, the, the idea of music and song, where are we Just going the other, with this? A couple, a couple, we, I wasn't really planning on going anywhere, oh, okay. but a, oh, okay. couple of, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the song of the universe and we were talking about, ah, yes, yes. The, the fact that all the creation is singing and listen, it is a window to prophecy. It is, it is a, a very high form of, um, of expression when it, comes from a pure and sincere place mm-hmm. yeah and um you know yeah, the, so that's why that, that so many people me. so people are moved and identify with it and the, the song the songs of the levites as i mentioned in the in that broadcast a couple of weeks ago was such an integral part of the service of the holy temple that the offerings are not even are not even valid if they are not accompanied by the by the song of the levites which is kind of like a again like a universal tikkun yeah and you know the uh, i saw um documentary once about bees and how the you know the you look at a honeycomb and it's this beautiful uh geometrical uh pattern a honeycomb is and there's this idea i don't know if i'm connecting two uh, separate ideas but uh or this is a thought that you know hashem provided but the idea was that when hashem spoke the material world into existence and he Hashem did speak it. There is that that sound is a sound that has never stopped. That it, that it's it's that the sound that God used to create the physical realm is actually those that that voice from the Creator actually continues. And for instance, you can see it in creation in that the uh, that that sound has a creative and even it it is able to form. Uh, and and to fashion shapes and geometry, the the same way you put uh, if you ever get a, a a little trick where you put a pie pan, and a metal pie plate, and you put sand in it, and then you hold it over a guitar, and you strum a chord on the guitar, the sound of that chord will shape those sands into a geometric pattern, and it will change with every different chord you play. And there's the idea that that sound that Hashem uh, created, this song that you're talking about, uh, actually is what shapes that shape of the of the beehive that, that has that amazing geometrical shape. I don't get too. So one of the major themes of Psalms is the is the voice of Hashem. There are like yeah. seven seven different voices. This is a lesson in itself that we need to give over some time. But you know, Hashem is above time and space, and his reality, his expression, you know, the Diburim, in other words, 
the 10 expressions of creation that we have in Genesis, let there be, you know, the word brishit being the first and, and the last really, and let there be, the idea being that this is what brought reality into being. But since Hashem is beyond time and space, that means that it's still happening. In other words, it never, yeah, it never stopped. Exactly. And therefore, therefore, that that's how you understand something that at first, when you look at it, it sounds maybe just like whimsical or just like, you know, like a, just like a, like a nice little tale. But, you know, the, the concept that the Baal Shem Tov, in his Beit Midrash, they would hear the sounds of Sinai. They would hear the sounds of the, of the revelation of Sinai all the time, every time they sat down to study. But the idea being that, that, that he and his students were on this level of such tremendous devotions, such tremendous clinging to Hashem, and, and such tremendous enlightenment that they were able to shed the trappings of the senses, which, as we've said in the past, rather than help us to perceive, they actually hold us back from perceiving things because they departmentalize things. And and he was able to, and they were able to experience the original sounds because it's still happening now. It's our problem, as it were, that we that we don't hear it, but Hashem's voice is still reverberating from Sinai. Speaking of which, since we just observed the festival of Shavuot just this week, and I hope all of our listeners had a wonderful, fruitful, productive, spiritually fulfilling festival. And if not, I'm sure they did anyway, because the blessing of Shavuot is still coming. It's still coming, and it's still kind of resonating. And you know what? Interesting thing about these days now, this week, the 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 the, the first 12 days of the month of Sivan have a special kind of like a festive uh, characteristic, a special nature to them, even though Shavuot is really only one day here in the land of Israel and two days in the diaspora, the, the, the sixth and the seventh of, of Sivan. Until the 12th of Sivan, it, it's considered to be like a uh, kind of like a festive period and there, that's reflected in the holiday prayers um, that we that we recite. And what is the special nature of the first 12 days of Sivan? So you know that that when people would come up to the Holy Temple for the for the Aliyah Lerego, the, the pilgrimage to the Holy Temple, and they would appear before Hashem in the in the sanctified courtyard of the temple, their their appearance is accompanied by an offering, by by a special offering, by a burnt offering, by the by the holiday festive offerings. And the the let's say the commandment is to bring this on the first day of the festival. But if a person didn't um, suffice to get it to get it done to bring it on the first day of the festival, so they have the whole festival. So as if a person wasn't able to bring their offering on the first day of Passover, they can, they can bring it all throughout the days of Passover. Now Shavuot in the land of Israel is only one day, so that's a that's, right. that's a. Yeah. It's a lot of people to bring an offering on that one day, and not everybody gets to to bring it on that day. And so, therefore, these are special days of like uh, supplements of completion, where we're in after Shavuot until the twelfth of the month. Everyone can bring their offerings. See, you see how even with the temple still not standing, even though the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet, the whole Jewish month and all of our kind of like our configuration and our and our plugging into reality is still based on the timetable of the temple and as if the temple was like why are these days special oh because we still have a chance now to bring our offering if we didn't get to do it on shavuot we have until the 12th of sivan and that's how we measure time because it's just kind of like a 
like a blip, you know, it's, it's kind of like a blip. Okay. The temple isn't standing yet, but everything, all eyes and all expectations and, and all plans are still directed on the rebuilding of the temple. Yeah. Because, and t- like we often point out, you know, time is holy. It's, it's the, you know, it's the first thing that God called Kadosh in, in the Torah, you know, when he, when he calls for a rest after creation and he, he calls for the, the first Shabbat. And, and so time, time is what made, time is what made the material world actually coalesce into existence. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I don't want to go quantum on you here, but. <laughs> well, you already did long ago when you started talking about music uh, translating into there you go. shapes. Yeah. And I didn't, I just didn't want to use the word quantum because I figured like, how, how many times can I ask you if you're going quantum? Yeah, exactly. Especially since I still don't know what it means. But Jim, you know, um, you mentioned something now that's so interesting because, you know, there's a very famous question, like, why did Hashem need to rest? What is the idea that he rested on the seventh day? He created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. Like he, there are so many verses in the Torah that tell us that he, he doesn't get tired, mm-hmm. you know, and he yeah. doesn't sleep. So what is the idea of like Hashem resting? Well, one of, one of the ideas is the fact that it's more like he paused or stopped short of finishing creation. That's one. That's one well, aspect, purpose? right? Well, so that so he... that so that so that humanity could have a role in being co-creators. He didn't finish it so that that we would have in in some ways something to do, so that we could be, since we were created in His image, we were allowed to be creative beings too and join Him in this process, right? Exactly. So there's yeah. no question about it that that that's a very big part of it is that we. Is that is that the universe is unfolding and unfinished, and that mm-hmm. we we are taking an active role in everything? But even more so, and I flashed on something as you were talking about the sanctification of time, because I think that what Hashem really did on the seventh day was he first of all he created rest. He didn't right. rest, but he created the concept of of rest. But more than that, we call it rest because it's kind of like we're used to like English translations. But what it's really all about is exactly what you said. It's the sanctification of time. And that's why he stopped on the seventh day, so that mm-hmm. so that we would have a sense of division and of of the ability to uh, to uh, for 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 our workaday life, for our for our humdrum, for our for our existence to be elevated and to be injected, infused with the concept of something singular and and elevated and. And to bring Hashem into into our lives, it's just, that's the whole idea of why not every day of this is the same. Of the whole the whole concept of of Shabbat as being this island of Hashem's presence felt so strongly in our lives every week that rejuvenates and and regenerates and refreshes creation. He brought in the sanctification of time through the creative process itself. Yeah, yeah. And if you take the creation story, you take that first week. And if you can, you can envision it being in the, for want of a better word, in the mind of Hashem, where Hashem, you know, we're supposed. Also, the creation story is is a lesson on how to how to how to do things, how to be creative. That there's an order to do this, and if you can think of Hashem first writing the, you know, uh, the Torah, this 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 algorithm. 
that would be used, this the Torah is this algorithm, this formula that brought creation into existence. When when he finished it, then the creation process started by by him finishing that process, that that writing of the Torah. And that is what that, that what's interesting, the connection with time is, is that if you look at the formula given to us by Einstein, E equals MC squared. What is matter? What is the what is the physical matter of the world? It is it is energy at rest. So you have uh, the, in the first thing in the Torah it says, "Let there be or let there be light." Well, it couldn't be talking about sunlight, so it's talking about a kind of energy, a kind of primal energy that everything that all matter was created from. So God brought that, spoke that matter into existence and then allowed it, rather the energy, the first thing he spoke, he, he brings energy into, into existence because he's Hashem, nobody else can do that. And then when that energy came to rest, matter was created. Isn't that amazing? This is absolutely the deepest thing I've ever heard. Is this quantum, Jim? It probably is. It probably I think we should change the official the official mission statement and title of Jerusalem Lights to be about quantum something. It's not just Torah for everyone; it's quantum Torah for everyone. Yeah, it is because, and I can't help it because I've always listen. Here's yeah, the thing. Go ahead. The thing is that, like you said, when Hashem said, "Let there be light," it wasn't talking about the sun because the sun was not created exactly at that time. So what it was, I mean, how did the sages understand "Let there be light"? It's the hidden light of creation, which later right. he hid away. And we yeah. speak about this all the time, the light that's released on Hanukkah through the candles, the holy day of the hidden light of creation. So basically now what you're saying is that it's the hidden light of creation, which is this aspect of Hashem's reality, which basically is the secret of, of, of all creation, of matter. Yeah, It's basically Hashem's essence. That's the hidden light of creation. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a little mind-boggling when you think about it. But this is the thing that I always, the reason this is so uh, important and so precious to me is because this is what brought me to Torah, is that I had a love, I've always had a love of science and archaeology, and I ask questions my whole life. I think a lot of our, our listeners are just like this. When they discovered Torah, yeah, Dr. suddenly— Dr. Schroeder, who we are, I always talk course. about Gerald Schroeder and his books— he himself, this is what brought him to Torah science. Exactly. In, in terms of his of his field of research, which is nuclear physics, this is what brought him yeah. to the realization of the Creator. Didn't uh, didn't the the late great uh, Rav of blessed memory, Rav Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, didn't he say that to study science is to study Torah? And of course, we're talking about true science, by the way. You know, this is you know this is science that is pure science. You know. Uh, free of of opinions and politicization and all that, but if there's such a thing anymore, well, it's <laughs> exactly. But the Rambam, Maimonides said that, and who himself was a great scientist, he mm -hmm. said the way to discover the Creator is to be able to perceive Him through through nature, through the world. Yeah, Amen. So much a part of this world. So so listen, back to Shavuot. We learned about you know the the duality of Shavuot. We spoke about that so much you know the the whole concept of how on the one hand it's so um spiritual the experience of receiving torah at, at mount sinai 
And on the other hand, it's celebrated in the time of the temple through such a material expression of, uh, of our attachment to this world, of, of our earthliness, by bringing the first fruits, which is, which is like Torah planted in the, in the ground and sprouting forth and manifest, Hashem's, speaking of Hashem's presence in nature, in other words, the celebration of the, of the Torah itself, as it were, the, the very giving of the Torah is expressed through the first fruits. And it's such a beautiful idea about, again, and we've spoken about this you know, quite often, the, the concept of how this world is sanctified and elevated and how we understand that dichotomy and this all also comes to a head in a very powerful way in the book of numbers the, this duality and dichotomy and the challenge of, of of being able to walk that line and understand you know how hashem fits into this world it's a it's a big challenge you know and, and i'm saying this knowing that there's so many people that reach out to me all the time and talk about their past experiences and their former faiths and a lot of scar tissue and a lot of baggage that they carry about things that they were told about religion and about, and about you know spirituality and about who Hashem is and 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 how to serve Him in this world. A lot of confusion from people that are emerging, you know, into into Torah. The thing is that that a lot of this is really personified by everything that we learn about this generation of the desert, the generation of the desert are the characters that we're learning about in these first uh, chapters, first partial portions of the Book of Numbers. The generation of the desert was an unusual, remarkable, special group of people. They were uh, decidedly the most lofty generation in history. Um, these are the people that left Egypt. So they, they experienced Egyptian bondage. They experienced... The hardships of Pharaoh, they experienced the splitting of the sea. They were witness to the ten plagues and to the splitting of the sea, and then they came into the desert. And these are the people that heard Hashem's voice and received the Torah and saw whatever it is that they saw at Mount Sinai. And they also ate the manna, which we learn about, in fact, in, in, in these parashiot here and in the book of Numbers. And so on the one hand, they were absolutely so amazing and the and the sages of israel give a lot of details and a lot of information between the lines about how remarkable this generation was and how there'll never be another such generation because they i mean just the very fact that they were able to eat the manna which was an intense experience of uh of um you know, it, it required a tremendous amount of, of spiritual purity and integrity to be able to digest the manna, which was the word of Hashem. And so they were they were huge, huge people. You know, they had this intimate relationship with Hashem. They were, you know, they just say that during the 40 years that they were wandering in the desert, the 40 years meaning that even after the terrible mistake that they made of of this of the uh, spies, which is next week here in the land of Israel, two weeks if you're abroad in in Parshat Shalach, you know the twelve spies. So so even so, even afterwards, as they were as they were in the desert, they never they never had to relieve themselves, you know, because they they ate the manna which had no physical uh, byproduct or waste, you know, it was totally a spiritual experience. They never their clothes never wore out, you know, mm -hmm. they grew with them and the. The expression is that the clouds of glory kind of like wash their clothes clean, rub their clothes clean. Their feet never, never developed blisters or swelled up, you know, walking on their feet for, for 40 years. 
so they were they were this remarkable 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 people but at the same time they failed so dismally and so miserably that hashem decreed on them as as we will find in the portion of shalach when we get to it hashem decreed on them such bitter disappointment that they were to drop dead yeah. is the expression that god himself uses and not very fond in the desert and that their children would go into the land but when they rejected the land of israel when they succumbed to this mass hysteria of um doubting hashem you know when they expressed a disdain for the, for the holy land because they because the 10 spies flipped out you know except for joshua and Kalev, then hashem decreed on the unit you know what this isn't working this isn't working you're staying here you're dying here and Oh my goodness! It's like it's so powerful, you know, to you know to to understand what happened to them. Because, like I say, I'm not making this up. They this this is this generation is the definition of a schizophrenic personality, as it were. Because and and not really. That's not even it. It's it's like they had potentially they had everything that you would think would mark them as being just complete you know they they had this relationship with Hashem which can only be envied it's it's inimitable what they experienced what they saw what they heard it's this is it this is it right but yet when it came to you know the terrible tragedy of the spies you know they flipped out they bought they bought the merchandise that the spies were selling, and why they why they were selling that is another story altogether. Because what happened to the spies is the is the microcosm of what the whole generation's problem was, and that was that. And what is that basically all about? Like on one foot of one foot of one foot, because you know the again these are vast cosmic quantum concepts that we that we speak about them, you know, every year. But it's so important to understand this again, especially in the light of what I, what I was saying, that there are so many people that are in our community, so many people coming to Torah from, from other, other directions that are confused about how do I find God in this world? How do I live my life? Do I, do I live an ascetic life? Do I, you know, can, can Hashem be celebrated and can, can a, a life of righteousness and virtue and holiness be observed as we are in this physical world? Because this was really the whole mistake that this generation aired with and, and that was personified by the mistake of the spies. It's like they had this tremendous relationship with Hashem. Again, inimitable. Who, who could imagine such a thing? That they, It's like that they were in an incubator. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that they were literally attached to God by an umbilical cord. They stepped out of their tents every morning, and Hashem literally had rained down during the night on the on the ground this godly food, right, which tasted like whatever they wanted, that did not cause them any any sort of discomfort or any sort of they didn't even have to have to you know relieve themselves. Their life was miraculous their life was like absolutely otherworldly it's like they were in the coming world already in this world it's like they were in god and, Eden. And, it was like they were in, they were in the, the garden yes. yeah and, but more than that more yeah. than that if they would have gone into the land then that would they have been would, that very generation would have fixed god Eden. yeah you see yeah. They, they they were they were having a a um a trailer of Gan Eden, a, trailer, a prequel, right? Yeah. A preview of Gan Eden. Coming attraction. If they would have gone in, if they would have gone in, and they would have been able to, 
plant in the land and grow and live like people according to Torah in the land, that would have been the tikkun of of the sin of the of the tree of knowledge, right? Yeah. But it, they didn't get that far. They didn't get that far because of this basic mistake that they made. Which and the reason I keep going back to all the souls that are coming to to Jerusalem lights that are coming to Torah that are that are asking to understand, you know, their relationship with Hashem. It was the same mistake. The mistake was in thinking that this world can't be, you know, that, that we can't live a, a, a life of devotion and, and spiritual um, fulfillment and purity in this world because it's it's too material and it, it brings us down and, it, and it's too physical. And that was the mistake that the spies made on a high level. Again, again, mm -hmm. there's so many levels of meaning. There's so many levels of interpretation. And it's so important. This is a lifetime of study, just to understand. And we're ahead of ourselves because we're not up to Parshat Shalach yet. But, you know, one interpretation of what went wrong was that they they felt it would be a letdown to go into the land of Israel because, like, how could they leave what they had there in the desert, which was so so totally intimate, you know, with Hashem. And he's feeding them and he's clothing them. And it's like... It, and then if they go into the land of Israel, then it's a, it's a step down. It's like a it's like a downgrade, you know. It's like from from first class to like passenger because we're to cargo because they have to they have to do things on their own and they have to. And that in itself was was the mistake, and it is a mistake of people today who think that the only way to live a worshipful life, or a life of fulfillment, a life of closeness to Hashem, is by separating ourselves, by being ascetic, you know, by by separating ourselves and by not being challenged, not being part of this world, and not being involved in this world. And, that, and that's the mistake, because the whole beauty of, of Torah is the sanctification of this world. And yes, it takes a lot of maturity. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of integrity. It, you really have to hold on to yourself, because you can veer very easily. Yeah. But I, the, I, the, yeah. the focus is to, is, to, is to stay on that path and to realize that Hashem created us as we are, as human beings, and that's our challenge. That's right. our challenge is to walk that tightrope. But this, this is the place. It doesn't. What does it count for if if we have no challenge? If we separate ourselves completely? Yeah. The the, the challenge is to overcome the 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 uh, the things that that Hava and that Adam and Eve ran into in their their God Eden experience, and that is suddenly they were faced with someone who was slandering God and casting doubt and this is the the nahash nahash the, the so-called serpent and that that's what to me ties this whole experience in in the the wilderness in this this sort of sheltered gone eden type experience was that it was all the create all the problems that seem to be always created in in the wilderness came from someone who spoke uh, a kind of lashon. They spoke directly a lashon hara, and th this is what we encounter in in Parsha Nazo. Is is you have the you you have a common thread running through here with the the um, the the sota, the wife that that is accused or that uh, her husband doubts that he's been faithful, and that's what happened in God Ed. And there's there's doubt cast uh, in, into this relationship. And you have you have the same thing going on with um, the, um, um, the 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 tabernacle, the Zaharat, 
Za'arat is caused by, it, doesn't this, in, in Naso, doesn't that come up in, in the Parsha? So there again is a connection of slander. And so, you know, everything, everything is, is set up so that, um, you know, there is, the, they're, they're having a Ghanaian experience, but yet they're having, they're also having to deal with the sort of Nachash element, right? Which is a part of life, always driving yeah, us down. Exactly. And so if you're saying an amazing thing, you know, amazing Torah scholar that you are, Jim. And that is that this very, very kind of like, I don't know what word I should use even. It's just so, so remarkably out there, you know, this concept of the Sota, the suspected mm -hmm. adulteress that we have in the Torah portion of, of Naso. Um here in chapter five of the book of numbers it actually has a has parallels and a throwback and is and is actually connected on a spiritual route to the garden of eden yeah to chava and the snake right and it's it's uh it's so difficult to understand you know because there's so much going on between the lines and it is a positive commandment. It's prescribed in the, in the Torah, and it's such an unusual situation. It's so remarkable because because you have this man who gets this uh, spirit of jealousy, right? And he's jealous of his wife, who apparently was seen uh, uh, with a, with the man, just you know, uh, privately. And so he suspects, and, you know, this is not uh, so easy to understand because, first of all, when it comes to th this whole idea of a, of a husband suspecting his wife, you know, and again, this, there's so much going on here on so many levels, it doesn't work unless he is exactly uh, perfect. Yeah. In other words, it, it, this is not like some chauvinistic thing, like where a man like suspects his wife and he starts to starts to uh, denigrate her and and you know humiliate her and that or, or that kind of thing. He gets this this kind of uh, reaction, you know, like he he gets filled with this kind of spirit. If he is not was not a perfect husband, if he, if he in any way was suspect himself of any sort of infidelity, and if he's if he's not perfectly pure, then the whole thing doesn't work. It's all, right. So that's the, the first idea. But the thing is, he has some sort of suspicion and she does not admit it, right? And now, now if she actually was guilty and she admits it, so then she she's not punished, you know? She, they, right. they're, they are divorced and and uh, she leaves his household without her ketubah and, and, and that's it. The thing is, she has to go through this remarkable examination which the outcome of the investigation either vindicates her or vilifies her. It pu either publicly substantiates this suspicion that he had or publicly affirms her righteousness, right? So it's this whole kind of like psychodrama that's going on. It obviously is working on so many levels. It obviously is standing in for the whole concept of our relationship with Hashem, honestly. That's right. really what it is What it is a parallel to. It is... Um, a message of fidelity. And again, coming now from Mount Sinai, coming from Shavuot, the whole idea of, of our relationship with Hashem is a parallel of man and wife. It's all about fidelity. How many times does, you know, does Hashem speak through the prophets using this metaphor, you know, the whole, the whole idea of, of Hosea, you know, what he was told to do. It's, it's all about understanding our relationship with Hashem as it were 
a relationship of commitment, you know, of, of man and wife. The whole Song of Songs is based on that. The thing about this here is that there's a certain intervention that's manifest with the sota for all to see, which is so kind of uh, bizarre, really, to, to the onlooker, because it's it has no parallel anywhere in Torah, because none of the Torah's mitzvot are ever dependent on a miracle. Right. This is the Except one, this one, this one exactly. exactly. That, yeah, yeah. It's so remarkable because this mitzvah is actually, the dynamic of it is manifest through something miraculous, which is what that's, in other words, it's only with the sotah, the suspected adulteress, that, that Hashem actually gets involved on a very practical level. It's the only law in the Torah whose fulfillment depends on a miracle because, first of all, Hashem is mentioned in these verses so many times, the Kohen shall bring the woman near and have her stand before Hashem, and the Kohen will have the woman stand before Hashem. When he administers the oath, he says, may Hashem render you as a curse, and Hashem causes. So so uh, what happens is, and this is the most like significant and far-reaching part of this examination, is that this woman literally ingests the name of Hashem. Right. Yeah. It's written on a, a scrap of paper. A, a parchment, right? A Hashem, parchment. This, this, this parsha, this section with Hashem's name in it is the holy, ineffable name of Hashem is written, and it is dipped in living waters, and therefore, thereby, the name is erased. Hashem's name is erased. Now that is that's crazy. Yeah, that is yeah. like that is like the an absolute terrible sin in Torah is ever to erase Hashem's name. You know that even today. I mean, we're very, very careful with printed materials, with holy books, with anything that we print out mm -hmm. that has Hashem's name in it cannot be even taken into an unclean place, and it certainly cannot be destroyed. And here, the the uh, it's such a highly unusual procedure that she actually drinks this solution into which Hashem's name was erased so the sages yeah. speak about this and and teach that this is like emphasizing the preeminence of what of what the proper relationship between husband and wife is shalom by it you know the peace of the home that it's so important to hashem that he allows his name to be erased for the sake of reconciling the husband and wife yeah and the commentary that i was reading recently about this that, that made so much sense especially if you're honest about being a, a man and a husband is the, uh, the, I can't remember the commentary I was reading in reference to this misfit is that psychologically a, a, a husband, even, even though it, it, she's proven to be completely innocent, the husband, uh, most husbands will always doubt, even though they go, they, they, if, if she's brought before a, a judge, a court and say, you know, I want a divorce because I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure she was unfaithful to me. And even if they did it without this, if they did it without this process, then the, the husband would always wonder all the time. And you look at, you look at a family like, like David's family and you had this David's father, uh, Ishai, uh, suspected David's mother of being unfaithful to him and that David was the, was the result of that. Even he, the father of David could never get over the idea that I, I still think that, that you David are a result of an adulterous relationship. And, and Yishai, David's father was a perfect tzaddik. Yes, exactly. Just as you were saying. And so is David's mother. 
yeah but, this, but woven into the soul of david is this tension which 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 is part of the nature of his messianic mission mm-hmm. which is to be such an, a comprehensive inclusive soul is to understand the the angst of all people this this played into why from the very outset he felt like an outcast in his own yeah. family and why his brethren treated him like the black sheep and this this is he writes about this so many times in psalms his childhood is feeling like and he writes in these in so many words that his brothers treated him like a stranger and it's all because of some very strange kind of like misconception yeah, that his yeah. father had about what him. i was going to say is is that but because of this this uh ceremony uh, this this uh, mitzvah is carried out in such a way that as you pointed out it's a miracle and god is brought into the process directly it is be- it because <laughs> because the way we're made as men it 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 will take a miracle from hashem to convince the husband that this woman is innocent when, when it is a, a, an innocent wife. And don't you think that that really does also speak about the relationship between the nations and, and, and the nation of Israel all these years, and especially today, in that, that there is this accusation constantly that you can't be the chosen people. Look at the way you act. Look at the, you know, because, because they're, they're judging Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, the people of Israel, the Jews by some standard that they set up, not that God set up, but, but because, because Jews and especially observant Jews who, who attempt to live a life of Torah, they're often, uh, even, even by the, this is what happens. I think in the Arab realm, the Arabs say, well, you can't be, you call yourselves God's chosen people, the people of the book. That's not what I see. So we have this Sota dynamic going on there between the bride of Hashem this this wife of Hashem, which is the nation of Israel. It to me, it's a startling uh, connective tissue. There. It works on many levels, and again, it it's so hardwired into Gan Eden, mm-hmm. into 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 the air uh, atmosphere of suspicion that came into the world already when, as it were, Chava sort of betrayed Adam. And the two of them sort of betrayed Hashem in the in the Garden of Eden, so it became a, a recurring theme. This this feeling, and I think this applies so much to to standing at Sinai and receiving Torah. And and again, the key word being fidelity in a relationship. You know, there's a famous teaching that in our relationship with Hashem, there's a famous teaching about man and wife, which is considered to be the ultimate holiness. You know, the relationship between a husband and wife in Torah. So. Uh, sages teach that a, a man and wife, if they merit the shechina, if they merit, if they, in their relationship to 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 conduct it properly, the shechina, the divine presence, rests between them. Yeah. A very very famous teaching is if you look at the Hebrew of ish and isha, husband and wife. So ish is aleph yud shin, and isha is very similar. It's aleph shin hey. So both of them have Aleph Shin, except that Ish has the Yud, and the woman, and Isha has He. So Yud and He together is one of the names of Hashem. Amen. And so the idea is that between them are the letters of Hashem's name. Right. But if you remove the the Yud and you remove the He, if you remove the Yud from the Ish and the He from the Isha, what are you left with? 
Aish. Aish. Fire. Fire. Yeah. So the the idea is that the the uh, relationship is sanctified and elevated and made holy by Hashem's presence. If you remove that element of of Hashem from the relationship of man and woman, all that you're left with is a consuming fire that ultimately right. will destroy them. Yeah, and not coincidentally, when uh, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, what is put in in the way to protect them from returning is a of a, a sword of of turning fire, which um, that you could write books about what that could mean. <laughs> right. But you, but it's it's connected there. And, you know, this is, I think, one of the most remarkable, uh, and we say this every time because, because of the remarkable nature of, of the, the Torah and its teachings, but this is one of those things that gives you pause, like this ceremony that seems to um, defy any kind of logic. But I think it's, I think the lesson for us today is especially is, is to, um, when when the people of Israel don't seem to conform to our particular standard, you know, and and I I've, I came across this recently. I was reading a website and uh, something going on in Israel, and and somebody decided to write, you know, uh, well the Jews aren't so innocent, and I thought, my God, I mean, you know, I'd like to meet this person and find out what their life is like, you know, and we see that in the media. The media is is the accuser these days, constantly. It's around us all the time, and I find that I find that uh, you know Carol has almost stopped watching the news because it has become such a fount of uh, venom uh, against what I call normative people, normal people, and uh, it certainly is as far as as the people of Israel, the Jews, and 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 the land of Israel. So it's, um, again, I think this is one of those cases, again, where the Torah Parsha, at least here in the Galut, which is not so, is so very pertinent to what's in our lives today. And you, you remember back in uh, the book of Exodus in Parshat Kitisa, after the incident of the golden calf, so again, something very, very bizarre, you know, Moshe comes down, sees what's going on. His anger flared up. He threw down the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burnt it in fire. He ground it to a fine powder and sprinkled it over the water, and he made the children of Israel drink. What does that sound like? What is that? What, what is does that, that sound just like? It's like a national <laughs> sota test. Yeah. It was like, again, the issue was like fidelity. Yeah. Like to prove, are you, are you loyal to Hashem or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I was looking at the Haftorah because, you know, it's always instructive if you don't quite grasp the Torah partial that week. Sometimes when, when I'm looking at it and I'm, and I'm looking for a, a real understanding, if, if it fails me, I will go to the, the Torah, to the Haftorah. And who is it about? It's about uh, the birth of Shimshon, of Samson. And it's it's the, the only connective link I can see. And, and I, I know that um, we have to think a little bit about this. If you read the whole story of the, of the birth of, no, of, uh, of, of Samson and his relationship with his enemies, the, the Pelishtim, the Philistines, 
it says in the it says in the law of the Sotal, what happens, Rabbi, if the woman is uh, found innocent? Uh, what is the next thing that happens? It says she's found innocent and she's blessed with a with and a she's beautiful she conceives birth. she conceives she she gives birth, and I was thinking about the fact that the um, one of the connections, of course, between this parsha uh, Naso and uh, the uh, the birth and the arrival of Samson is because he was famous for being uh, a Nasir, a, a person who who decides to dedicate uh, his his uh, the, the way he lives to Hashem, and he keeps away from strong drink, etc., and things like that. So, what does he do as as someone with this enormous strength that comes from the way he lives as a Nasir, and he heads down to the uh, to the land of the Pelishtim, the Philistines, and is going to marry a Philistine woman. And so, what what will what will ensue? People will begin to the the the, the people of Israel will look at him and say, "What is this the son of Manoach doing? What is he doing? He's 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 uh, he's living a life that is against Torah. He's intermarrying with uh, with the enemy." The, you know, with the Pelishtim. And I think that's the, I think that's the other link, if you will, is the fact that he was, he had to be slandered by the people because even his parents didn't know he was plotting to take down the, the enemies of Israel and even um, would uh, put up with the fact that people were going to slander him and say, look what he's doing. Look at the life he's living. And he's supposed to be a Nasir. And when actually he was, Again, another parallel. He was a, he was a spy. He was on a he was on an undercover mission. Shimshon Samson's story is the Haftorah to the Parsha that gives us the the idea of slander and the Sota concept. I want to mention one more thing, Jim, about Parshat Naso. There's and there's so many amazing, you know, uh, amazing things. There's the priestly blessings and. Uh, the Nazarite, of course, who, according to a basic understanding, he witnesses the degradation of the Sota, and that's why he decides, well, this world is just too much for me. I have to separate myself. And in all the things that we can learn from the Nazarite, again, going back to the theme that we were speaking about earlier about, which is what exactly is the balance of, of a person in this world. I want to mention something else, though, altogether. You know, a great deal of Parshat Naso, chapter 7 in the Book of Numbers, is taken up with the, the offerings of the tribal leaders. Right. In the uh, in the dedication of the tabernacle, it's actually eighty nine verses. It's a very very long chapter, and each one of the of the tribal leaders, princes of the tribes, brings an offering on behalf of that that tribe of Israel, and all the offerings are, are identical. Yeah, and yet there is there there are tens and tens of verses here that seem very very repetitive. And it would have been so much easier just to say each one of the tribes brought the following: one silver bowl, hundred and thirty shekels in weight, one silver basin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because they all brought the same thing. Yet it's repeated separately for every single one. And and those people who are sincere students of Torah know that this is a red flag. Yes, this is one of the things that that catches our attention because we know that Torah is perfect and its authorship is divine and it is extremely economical 
with words and everything, there's nothing missing and there's nothing added. So when something seems off to us, because it certainly seems to be missing, whether it's a letter or a word or extra, it means something and it means something very, very important. Yeah. So how in the world could we have such a repetition totaling altogether 89 verses when it certainly could have been avoided completely just by telling us that this is the offering that was bought that was brought by all 12 leaders this is and where again, i see this is where i see the idea of the torah being in 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 one respect an algorithm and that in that this formula that we encounter with everything that you just described has to be written that way on one level there's a lesson there that's on the simplest level but on another level it's necessary and I'm just going to throw this out there. It's almost as if uh, one day we'll be looking into th this, these very verses and we could find something like the cure for cancer. First of all, I love, 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 love what you're saying about the algorithm. I think that's such a beautiful a contemporary way for a person to understand what Torah is. You're absolutely yeah. right. Second of all, anytime we ever say anything, we, we go out on a limb because people have to understand this is only one level. This is only one level of interpretation, and it is literally endless. And this is the beauty. We always speak about the fact that we learn through the five books of Moses every year. There, Of course, there are so many more aspects of Torah. There's so much to learn. But even just in the area of the, of the five books of Moses, the weekly Torah portions, you can go through the cycle 50 times and 60 times, and as long as a person lives, we're always going deeper and deeper and deeper because it is literally endless. And so... Okay, this is one idea, and you have another idea, and that's nice, and we have we have a way of looking at it. But then Hashem opens up our eyes because we we want more, and we go further, and we find more. So I always feel like oh, I have to almost like make a disclaimer whenever we say anything ever, because this is only one level. But mm -hmm. let's go with it, and and you know because this is this is the one we have now. But but I I I want to say what you're saying is so deep because you're you're saying that it is kind of like expanding like the universe itself and it is it is so um inclusive because it will because because throughout time it will continuously reveal more and more right that's i think that's what an algorithm is here but but i want to say something very simple i want because again there's so many so many levels of meaning and that's the beauty of of torah study that purifies our heart that brings us closer to hashem that gives us our anchor in this world and that brings light into the world i want to say something jim and that is what would you say is the major difference between all of these. And as you're looking at the 89 verses, and for the life of you, you know, you can't find any difference. It's all the same description exactly. And hence our question, which is a powerful question, why this repetition? But there is something different about each one that isn't recorded in the verses. And what would that be? It's what each one of them had in mind. Uh, that can't be... Yeah. translated into the into the word so in other words yeah. there is this beautiful human aspect which is beyond words beyond communication and that's what makes every single one of these offerings an individual act of the heart in other words what the part that differed which is not reflected in the verses is the is this personal side and so what did each one bring that was different the intention. The intention. Wow. That's amazing. The intention. And, and, and why did Hashem want all 12 to bring the same thing? Because each one lent it 
something from the heart that was missing that together formed this beautiful kaleidoscope of all of Israel, of all of the tribes. And, and more than anything, what this shows us, this repetition, and this is something you can take home. This is something that every single person listening can take home because, yeah, you can say, oh, why should I bother davening? Why should I bother doing these prayers? Why should I bother doing this? Hashem has all kinds of people doing that. He's got all kinds of people better than me that are doing that. He doesn't need my service. I don't need to do this. Yes, but you have something to add. Again, it's getting back to the song of the universe again. You're playing a note that nobody else can play. So all mm. these people looked ostensibly like they're bringing the same offering, but no, each one is coming with his own kavanah, with mm-hmm. his own intention. And that that's a, such a beautiful idea because everything is personal. Everything is personal. And in everything that we do in our, in our relationship with Hashem, and we're bringing a new facet that, that the next person can't bring. He needs all of us to complete this picture. Yeah, it speaks to this wonderful aspect of Israel as a nation in that it, excuse me, it is a nation that thrives, uh, that God always reminds them that they are each one a unique creation. They're a unique individual, yet somehow that uniqueness is brought into play in a united way. With their, this is the this is the thing that this is the thing that we can't seem to get together on when uh, in what we call a democracy. We're we're going through turmoil in 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 this country today because people have become individuals to the point where they ignore the cares and the thoughts and the wishes of of their neighbors. You know, well, I'm important because again, it's just narcissism. And God, in, in God's realm, that, that narcissism doesn't exist. And people, people can recognize that they're gifted and they're different and that they, they have gifts that God gave them, and yet they can do it in a united way. That's another miracle in itself, you know. And speaking of Israel's mission, which you spoke about earlier, Israel being maligned or misjudged by media, etc., this is the thing that Israel is really supposed to teach the world, and that is the role of the individual and how every person can contribute to Hashem's world. That's really what we're supposed to be doing. That's why this is here. And it's not only about Israel, it's Israel's legacy and, and mission to all of humanity. And that's the whole idea of what we're, we're really supposed to be doing in this world as a light to the nations, is bringing this light to all people so that the whole world together can can bring Hashem's light in, yeah. into perfection. Yeah, the, the work of the tabernacle is God's answer, uh, God's perfect answer to what began after the flood when the Tower of Babel was built, in that God said, look at these people. They are so united in their cause that nothing will stop them because I, that's the way I've created them. I know what they're capable of. But he had to stop them. He loved that they were united. That's why he didn't. That's why he didn't destroy everyone. He destroyed the tower. He destroyed the hands of their work because if they had not, if he'd let them alone, then they would have created uh, a hell on earth probably, because it was all driven by personal ambition. It, it, they they had actually come together, and each had an, an individual unique agenda, except there was one thing missing which was Hashem he was missing from the mix and and his 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 answer to 
that work uh, of the tower was to say, I have a better version of that. And it's called the tabernacle, the Mishkan, the temple. Jim, have a wonderful, safe, uneventful, restful trip if there is such a thing. I look forward to welcoming you here in the land of Israel very soon. Amen. And yeah, God willing. Yeah, that's right, Hashem. So we're just getting started. Yeah. So, yeah. so God willing, we will be listeners. we will be talking to each other face to face in the next edition of Jerusalem Lights, and and maybe even this time, I don't know. Should I even? mention it because we keep mentioning that we, we may even be seen soon doing we're working this. on it we're working, working on, on that it. yeah yeah to show people there we're not disembodied voices <laughs> so, <laughs> so jim I'll, I'll get some soup ready for you soon all right yes some lentil right. soup so all right love that stuff it has a biblical ring to it it does so it really does slightly uncomfortable i'm not giving you any birthday <laughs> i know you like I, that soup but the point is i like it fully cooked that's the difference that's Everyone right. have a wonderful, wonderful week and only good news and good things and all blessings. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.